Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Did you have a good Christmas? You had a good Christmas? Awesome. Glad to hear it. And uh, I know we had a wonderful Christmas in our house, and it's interesting to take note that it's five days until the new year, and to think that another year has passed us by and we've survived. Tell about it. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, the sermon that I'm going to be bringing this morning is the last sermon in the sermon series entitled Incarnation. Incarnation being the biblical understanding and the Christian understanding that God took on flesh and dwelt among humankind, to which we can now say definitively in the book of Matthew, Emmanuel, God's with us. We can say that and know that with full assurance. Now, the title of my sermon this morning is this, After the Nativity is Gone. After the Nativity is Gone. How many of you are like me, where things look drab and bare after all the Christmas decorations are gone? Are you similar to me? Where you kind of look around. I know this sanctuary, Darcy Becker and her team, they always do an awesome job of decorating this sanctuary. And then when it's over, you walk in, it just feels empty. Same with my house. Right, Franny decorates our house, the Christmas tree gets taken down, and uh, other than needles all through the house after I drag the Christmas tree outside. And how many of you always forget to water your Christmas tree like I do? I just always forget, and then one day I bump up against it, all the needles hit the floor, and of course I blame someone else. But the idea here is this, is that the Bible is written in such a way to mirror real life, and especially the Gospels, and especially the Christmas story. It's important for us to catch this, that if I were God, maybe, or someone else, and they were writing the story of God stepping into the world, I think the temptation would be is that it would all be victory. But if you think through the actual birth story of Jesus, It's got good times, great times, difficult times, and times that no one would sign up for. And so when we think about the nativity being gone or after the nativity is gone, I want us to remember how it is that the Christmas story came to us, that the incarnation happens. It begins with the announcement of Mary's pregnancy And the exhilaration of that, the angel coming to her, the joy of her own soul that she will be conceiving of spirit and bearing a son and the excitement of that. Her cousin Elizabeth in joy sings a song over her as she's with child and John the Baptist leaps for joy inside of Elizabeth's womb. But we also have to remember that Mary's pregnancy was complicated in the sense of she wasn't married. Joseph, the one who was engaged to her, struggled with Mary's pregnancy. And it took an angelic visitation and a dream for him to make that commitment. We know even from last Sunday that Rome's dominance was being felt and Rome was tightening up on the Jewish people, and they had announced, Caesar Augustus announced a census, 
And the purpose for that was immediate taxation. They needed to know how many people were among the Israelite people so they could tax them even more heavily. We learn in the biblical story that Mary arrives in David's hometown and the the room she would have chosen is unavailable. And she places her baby in a manger just like every impoverished shepherd mom always has. And then all of a sudden the story takes an uptick again because the angels come in and make this incredible heavily announcement. They invite the shepherds to the party. The shepherds are overjoyed and then the magi show up and they worship and they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then the next story in Luke, you just flip the page and Herod determines he's going to kill the child. And so Mary and Joseph become political refugees and they move to Egypt But many of the young children or young boys in and around Bethlehem lose their lives. The reality of it is, is that the Christmas story, the incarnation is a story that's filled with real life, highs and lows, joyful times, very perilous, if not deadly times. That's the story of the nativity of Jesus and beyond. So again, as we think through after the nativity and after the nativity is gone, I want to remind us there's a scandalous pregnancy of Mary, angelic announcements, political power and corruption, violence, death, a baby, fear, and faith. Does anyone feel like that kind of sounds like the days in which we live? I think every preacher that is preaching right now knows that COVID is the closest environment to the biblical environment in which we're preaching the nativity story. In 30 years of preaching, this is the closest to truly what it was like culturally into which Jesus was born. Now, you've already heard several times in this service that what we're moving towards next is a church will be 21 days of fasting starting on January the 10th. We're calling this so that we as a people can gather together to regain our traction, to commit in fresh and new ways to be people who are following Jesus, growing together and serving others. Again, it begins on January the 10th, which is a good thing, and I want to tell you why. Sociologists have studied 35.1 million people with New Year's resolutions. And do you know which day most of them have failed by? January 12th. So we're getting in there just before your New Year's resolutions totally fall apart and we'll begin this 21-day journey together. But again, there's a reason for it. And that is because we live in difficult times. We know this. And yet there's something about the birth of Jesus that tells us God knows what it's like to go through it and he's with us in the midst of it. And ultimately, this is what faith is all about. Now, I've already mentioned that this sermon is going to focus on after the nativity is gone. Here's an interesting thing. There are only three stories, three, that are about Jesus after he's born And before, in his early 30s, he steps into public ministry. Only three stories. That's it. There's the story in Matthew where Herod makes a move to kill the children. 
And so Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt. So we know that Jesus was a political refugee in the earlier parts of his life. We know this. But you know, other than that, all we have are two stories from the Gospel of Luke, and they're back to back. And literally, that's all we know. After the nativity is gone, all we know are these two stories. Can you imagine your life, let's say you're 30 years old and older, you get to pick three stories, and that's it. Here's what I want to assure you of. The gospel writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did not believe that the stories of Jesus' childhood, other than these three, were important enough to know. It's actually at his baptism, when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, that the trajectory and the reality of Jesus is made fully known. Then we have all kinds of stuff. But if you're here and you're 30 years older or old, 30 years older, older, maybe you've even doubled that lap, you get to pick three stories. And that's it about your life. We're going to look at two of them. We're going to look at two stories about after the nativity is gone and what happens in the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. So what I want to do is I want to read the first one. They're in succession. We're going to read the first one, and then we're going to read the second one. But here's what I believe. Those stories are there for a reason, and the reason is clear. There are certain things the Gospels want us to know, God wants us to know, about following Jesus after the nativity is gone. Well, let's begin by reading in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 35. Luke chapter 2, 21 through 35. This is more text than we normally read. I'm going to read some of it, push the pause button, give some explanation, then we'll pick up our reading again. Here we go. Luke 2, 21 and following. On the eighth day... When it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now let's push the pause button and try to figure out what's happening. If you're taking down notes, just simply write down Leviticus chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. And what we discover in Leviticus, which is where the law of Moses is explained, there are specific laws that are actually given to women around childbirth. They're actually quite sophisticated. And in the midst of that, God through Moses brings very specific things that need to happen. And if you were to read Leviticus 12 verse three, you would discover that here's what it says. This is in the law of Moses for every Jewish male child. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. It's the law of God. So what we discover is Mary and Joseph are Jewish. They're raising Jesus to be a Jew. And on the eighth day, he's circumcised. We just read that in Luke 2. But then Leviticus chapters 12 and verses 3 and onward tells us this. Then the woman must wait 
33 days to be purified for her bleeding. In other words, 40 days. And when the days of her purification for her son or daughter is over, she's to bring to the priest a lamb and a dove. Now, those sacrifices are for her purification. It's what it's for. It's in the law of Moses. And what's fascinating is, on the, around the 40th day, she's to go to the priest, she's to bring and offer a lamb, as well as two doves for her purification. But there's this last little phrase at the end. And it says in verse 8 of Leviticus 12, but if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering so that the priest make, make atonement for her, atonement for her and that she would be clean. And I want us to notice in Luke what Mary and Joseph bring. They bring the birds. They don't bring the lamb. They're poor. So they show up as an impoverished young couple. And what they're doing is they know what the Bible says and they're walking it out. They know what the Bible says, and they're walking it out. We call that obedience. People don't want to hear the word obedience, but we discover here that Jesus is being raised in a home where his parents make a choice. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what we're going to do, and we're going to walk it out. And they're raising him in the laws of Moses. So I want us to notice that. Now let's read on. What happens next? Verse 25. Luke 2, it says, Then there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, and moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, and Simeon took, took him in his arms and praised God, saying, now picture this. You've got Mary and Joseph who are impoverished Jewish, this young couple, they're bringing the baby Jesus and they're following the law of Moses. And out of sheer obedience, they bring him to the temple. And when they walk up onto the temple, this guy named Simeon walks up and grabs the child and pulls him into his arms. Stage right, Simeon walks into the story, grabs the baby and holds him and then says the following, Sovereign Lord, you have promised, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. In other words, Simeon saying, now I can go home and die. It's incredible. Reading on, he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Picture, he's holding this baby that's 40 days old. And prophetically, he makes an announcement over the child and says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And the child's father and mo mother marveled at what he said about him. I mean, picture this. They're just being obedient to scripture. 
They're walking out what they know the Bible tells them to do. They're bringing their child before the Lord. And when they get there, stage right, Simeon walks in, picks up the child, and basically says, this child is the light to Gentiles and the glory of Israel. And the parents marvel. Man, that's a good time. You imagine. Here they are. And all of a sudden, Simeon makes this announcement, and as he's holding the baby, he says, now I can go home and die. I've accomplished it. I've seen what God said he would show me. But then the next thing gets interesting. Verse 34, it says, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be spoken against. Oh boy. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And oh, by the way, Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now here's what I believe to be the case for the story we've just read. In the Gospel of Luke, your Christian life And my Christian life was just encapsulated in that brief story. Everything that God intends for you and for me is found in that brief little story. What Mary and Joseph have done for Jesus, we are called to do as well. Same life. Now in this, let's begin with the one that always bugs me the most. Can I be honest with you? It bugs me the most. It's the waiting It says that Simeon had waited his entire life for God's promise to come true. He had waited his whole life. Look, I've had God give me promises, and the waiting is the hard part. Anyone else experience that? Where you just know, and you're waiting and waiting, and he's so tired of waiting that when he holds up the baby, he says, now I can go home and die. My life is complete. Now listen, waiting is a difficult, challenging thing, but following the nativity and after the nativity is gone, please know that's part of the Christian experience. It is. It's part of what it looks like to walk by faith. That we believe that God has given us his promises and we are going to wait on him and trust on him. But I'll be honest, I resonate with the Psalms that say so freely, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, until you fill your promises to humankind. I know what that feels like. And believe it or not, the book of Hebrews tells us that there are those who heard of the promise of God, but never experienced its fulfillment until heaven's shores. Sometimes the waiting even carries us past this life. And the scripture tells us this. But we live in an impatient culture where if Amazon can't deliver it in two days, it's not worth having. It's not how faith works. Faith has waiting and trusting and believing. The next thing that I think this story teaches myself and you about what it looks like to follow Jesus has everything to do with the Holy Spirit. I know that some churches don't talk much about the Holy Spirit. 
And yet if you look at Simeon three times, it tells us in rapid succession that the Spirit of God had revealed it to him, that the Spirit of God was on him, and that the Spirit of God was moving him. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which is the second book that Dr. Luke writes, is all about the moving of the Holy Spirit in and through human life, yours and mine included. So it's not just about waiting, it's also about being open to the Holy Spirit, really believing that God deals with us personally in unique and profound ways. Simeon is the ultimate believer. He has waited, and then he saw the Christ. And when he did, he understood the fulfillment of it, and the Spirit of God was active in his life the entire time. And the other thing that I think is so important for me to remember and you to remember as well is that when Simeon holds up the baby, here's what he says. And this child is a light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. This child is a light to the Gentiles. This child will be the way in which God will bring his reality to people outside of the Jewish nation. This child is going to expand the kingdom of God all over the world. And where up until this point, God had picked a group, a people called the Israelite people and made a covenant with them. Through this child, even the Gentiles now will be welcomed in and accepted into the plan of God how important this is. But then he also says something else. And that is this, that the hearts of people will be laid bare. Let's read the text again, Luke 2, 33 through 35. It says, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. There's the high part, right? That's the part we love. That's the part that Christmas is famous for. And then it goes on. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts, hearts are gonna be revealed. When people meet Jesus, their hearts will be revealed. Who you truly are will become exposed. And oh, by the way, Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. It goes from marveling to a sword piercing the soul. Please know that if you've been taught a Christianity that teaches you that if you have enough faith, you will never experience suffering. If you have enough faith, you will always be on the mountaintop that diametrically opposes what the Bible teaches. Mary, you've brought the Christ child into the world. You're going to go from marveling to soul-piercing pain. And all of it has to do with Christ and living in a world where this thing called Christianity is about real life. It's about where people truly live. But notice again in that passage, it tells us this, hearts will be revealed. Hearts 
will be revealed. When you meet Jesus, if you are filled with pride and self-centeredness, that will be revealed. If you meet Jesus and your heart is hardened because of pain and you've decided to turtle up, when you meet Jesus, that will be revealed. Biblically speaking, the heart is the center of who you are. The heart is what God cares about. The heart is what God is passionate about. And there's something about meeting Jesus where the heart is revealed. But the good news is, if you meet him and your heart is filled with pride, he can do something about that. If you meet him and your heart is crusted over and you've turtled up because of suffering in this world, when you meet him, you will sense that, but he can soften your heart again. If your heart lacks hope and is broken, that will be revealed when you meet him. But he can do something about it if you offer your heart to him. Now our last story. Our last story is about Jesus when he's the age of 12. All we know about him in his pre-30 years is very simple. What we just read about Jesus being brought into the temple and now when he's 12 years old. It's all we know. And here's what the scripture tells us in Luke chapter two, verses 46 through 52. We're going to read it and then close. It says, after three days they found him. Let's push the pause button. Jesus is now 12 years old. His family is in Jerusalem for the Passover. They're there to celebrate the top Jewish holiday. Jesus' parents, according to Luke chapter 2, had been heading home for one day. And after one day's travel heading home, Joseph looked at Mary and said, where's Jesus? He hasn't been bugging me for pocket change. Where is he? And Mary says to Joseph, I thought he was with you. And Joseph said, no, I thought he was with you. All right, check with the neighbors. Hey, Smiths, have you seen him? No, haven't seen him. Where's Jesus? Oh, we have no clue where Jesus is. Has anyone seen Jesus? No, no one's seen Jesus. Look, this is worse than leaving your child at the mall. They're literally a day's journey away. So now they travel a day back. And when we pick up our reading, they search in the city for three days. Let's do the math. They've lost Jesus for five days. Five days days and he's 12. Now for some 12 years olds, that had been the best five days of their life. But for parents, that is a nightmare. And here's what the text tells us. It says, after three days they found him. So remember, one day travel away, one day travel back, and now three days searching for him in Jerusalem. It says they found him in the temple courts. Push the pause button. If they really believed he was the son of God, they ought to looked in the temple first. But they looked in the arcade. They looked at Starbucks. They went to Dick's Sports. They looked everywhere else. And after three days, finally went to the temple. Reading on. It says, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, can you hear the Jewish accent? Son, why have you treated us like this? And his response is stunning. 
she goes on, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. By the way, that's a horrible translation from Greek. It's like they have been panic-stricken. Verse 49, he asked them the question, why were you searching for me? Well, duh, you've been lost for five days. That's why. And he asked, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And now the sword pierces Joseph's hearts too. Because he wanted Jesus home in his house. And Jesus says, Dad, I've got another father and I've been in his house. Interesting. And then reading on it says, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And then he, meaning Jesus, went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and with man. As we close, the question is, how do I put feet to my faith with this? And it's actually quite simple. It begins here. Everyone, including Mary and Joseph, had to make a journey to find Jesus. It's not just the shepherds. It's not just the magi. It's everyone. Even his own parents had to take a journey to find him and to understand who he was. And then last, that all of us, somehow, some way, we make this commitment that the life of someone who follows Jesus will be about being biblically based and Holy Spirit led. It is so critical that we understand as followers of Jesus when the nativity is gone, that the Christian life is about following Jesus, learning what the scriptures say, walking it out like Mary and Joseph did, and then like Simeon, being open to the spirit and longing for what it is that the Spirit wants to do in my life and in yours. Let's stand together as we close. As we stand together, we're going to move towards worship. Following worship, I'll come back and give the pastoral blessing. But as we stand into God's presence, let's take a moment and close our eyes, but open our hearts. After the nativity is gone. What we know is there will be times where we will marvel and be filled with wonder. And other times we will face things that we would have never signed up for. But please know, all of those events are a part of the story of Jesus. And we're called into them too.